The Australian government's pledged $1 billion to tackle gendered and family violence, so do we need to do the same here? For that and everything else we're talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is called Anatomy of an Arrest. It's written by senior reporter Marty Sharp and is about how a police officer who served with distinction was convicted of assault and how if he was in the same position today, he'd do exactly the same thing. Here is Elmo Johnston reading Marty's story, Anatomy of an Arrest. At 2am on April 8th, 2020, four hours into his nine-hour night shift, Sergeant Rhys Marshall made a decision that forever tarnished his 11-year career in the police and ended the prospect of him returning to a role that a judge said he had carried out with distinction. What follows is the story of what occurred that morning, two weeks into the first COVID-19 lockdown, and is drawn from evidence provided by Marshall and officers under his command at the time and the man they arrested. Marshall was in the Hastings Police Safety Team in charge of 10 constables. A police officer since 2009, he had worked in various parts of the country as a frontline cop and in family harm, and was a team leader in the Armed Defenders Squad. One of the constables told Marshall about a man whom she held concerns about. The man, who we'll call John, was facing a charge of assaulting his partner. When the constable went to the partner's house on April 4th to obtain a victim impact statement, she found John there in breach of his bail conditions. John told her, incorrectly, that he'd been told by a family harm officer that he was allowed to be there. The constable told him that she would check his bail conditions and if they hadn't been amended and he was found there again, he would be arrested. The constable had since learnt that John was still at the woman's house and raised this with Marshall, who checked and confirmed that John's bail hadn't been amended. He also spoke with the family harm officer, who says he'd never told John he could stay at the address. Marshall felt the woman was at serious risk and wanted to arrest John if he was found at the house in breach of his bail conditions. The constable believed John was using methamphetamine and based on the dealings she'd had with him, she believed he would either fight or run to evade arrest. Marshall assembled his team and made a plan. It involved the constable and a senior constable going to the address and the setting up of cordons in case John tried to run. Seven cops, including Marshall and a dog handler and his dog, were involved in the operation. Ideally, if John was at the address, he'd submit to arrest and be taken to the Hastings police station. But that's not what happened. When the officers knocked on the house's door, the woman opened it. John could be seen behind her lying in bed and the constable told him he was being arrested for breach of bail. What occurred over the next 15 to 30 minutes is the subject of different narratives. The police version. John, who was naked and under bedsheets, told the officers, nah, f*** off. The two officers entered the house and a heated discussion ensued, in which the officers told him he was in breach of bail and was being arrested, and he told them he had permission to be there. The officers told him he needed to get out of the bed and put some clothes on. He continued to refuse. 
At this point, Marshall entered the room. The officers continued to urge John to get up and get dressed, offering to open drawers and get his clothes for him. They would not let him open the drawers himself because they were concerned he may grab a weapon. He would feign compliance saying he'd get dressed, then say something like, Oh nah, get I'm not coming with you. This went on for more than five minutes, at which point Marshall and the senior constable attempted to put handcuffs on John. He resisted, lashed out and began thrashing around, making it impossible to apply the handcuffs. John was yelling at them to f*** off and was highly agitated. The police version of events says becoming extremely non-compliant as the officers told him to stop resisting arrest. Marshall, who was initially involved in the tussle, had stood back as three of his officers struggled to gain control of John. Throughout the interaction, Marshall was considering appropriate tactical options. He decided the taser was the best option and warned John he was going to use it. John continued struggling. Marshall used the taser's stun mode by placing it against John's back and pulling the trigger with the intention of incapacitating him. Marshall warned him he'd be stunned again, but John kept struggling, so the taser was used a second time. John continued fighting, but the officers were eventually able to get his arms behind his back and put on the handcuffs. John continued to struggle. When Marshall and another officer tried to take him out of the house, he refused to walk and dragged his feet while calling them pigs and telling them to f*** off. Once outside, the officers placed him face down on the grass verge beside the road. Ordinarily, he'd have been put straight in the back of a police car, but due to COVID-19, anyone arrested had to be taken to police stations in a paddy wagon. At this point, with John still thrashing about, Marshall put one of his knees on John's back and the other knee on his left cheek. He remained like that for the 30 to 40 seconds it took for the paddy wagon to turn up. Marshall later returned to the police station, helped John out of the paddy wagon, then helped him put clothes on. John was later checked over by a doctor who noted that he had swelling on the left side of his face, but nothing of more concern. Marshall didn't think much more of the incident until weeks later when he heard from another officer who told him John had been admitted to hospital. John's version. John says the officers barged into the house and began screaming that he was under arrest and had to go with them. He told them he was allowed to be there. He says the officers were wearing face masks due to the COVID-19 requirements and they looked like a bunch of ninjas ransacking my house. He felt scared and feared they intended to assault him. He was naked and wanted to get dressed, but when he reached to his drawers to get clothes, the officers grabbed his arms and began twisting them. He says there were at least eight officers in his bedroom and he was trying to be compliant and allow them to handcuff him. Instead, they kept twisting his arms and one of them jumped on his back and started strangling him, then tasered him without any warning. He believed, wrongly, he was tasered four times, not twice. The pain was excruciating, he says. He was then dragged from the house with the handcuffs cutting into his wrists and slammed onto the ground. Throughout the incident, he felt the officers were trying to entice him to fight back because they were saying things like, you f***ing little bastard, you f***ing black c He says it felt like Marshall's full weight was on his head and he felt and heard his face crack. 
John says it felt like about two minutes that Marshall was kneeling on his back and head before he was put into the paddy wagon. After being taken to the police station and checked by the doctor, he was taken to Hawke's Bay Prison where he remained until April 21st when he was released on bail again. John says he had felt pain in his face since the arrest and on April 26th he went to the emergency department of Hawke's Bay Hospital where it was discovered he had a fractured cheekbone. He underwent surgery. Today on Newsable, why women's refuge isn't so keen on New Zealand following in Australia's footsteps when it comes to investing $1 billion towards tackling family violence. Plus, inside the inquest into the death of toddler Lockie Jones. And have you had a shocker job interview? Wait till you hear some of these clangers. And one of them involves someone having to moo like a cow. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. About a year after the incident, Marshall left police for reasons unrelated to the incident. Another year passed before he was formally charged with assault. Marshall appeared before Judge Noel Sainsbury in a two-day judge-alone trial in Hastings District Court in February 2023. The police prosecution called John, as well as one of the constables involved in the arrest, and Senior Sergeant Graham Sidney, a tactical options supervisor at the Police Integrated Tactical Training Section at the Royal New Zealand Police College. The defence called two of the constables involved in the arrest, and Marshall gave evidence himself. Lying at the heart of the case, the judge says, was whether the sort of force that led to John's cheekbone being fractured could be considered reasonable and necessary in the circumstances. Sydney's evidence in this respect was crucial. He outlined the policies designed to set out when officers can use force. Officers must always use the minimum degree of physical force to achieve an objective, and it must be necessary, proportionate, and reasonable in the circumstances. He says police were trained to avoid the head or neck area, and any techniques used to restrain the head or neck should only be used where there was a threat of death or grievous bodily harm. Sydney says a knee placed on the back of someone being handcuffed was an accepted practice but knees should not be placed on someone's head or neck, and if an officer's knee slipped into the neck or head area, it should be removed. We don't put a time frame on getting away from the head or neck areas, Sydney says. It's with the circumstances around what the subject might be doing at the time. But we say in training that every effort should be made to get away from that area as soon as they possibly can. And that's dependent on what the subject is doing, I guess, at the time. Marshall says he had done everything he could to avoid the situation that resulted in John's injury. If I had to do it again, if I was still in the police and I had to do the same thing tonight, I'd do exactly the same thing. There's nothing I'd change. I'm proud of my career in the police. I'm proud of what I've done. And no, I wouldn't do anything differently, he says. Under cross-examination, he says he'd been trained in restraint tactics and had undergone the annual refresher courses. The police teach you so much, he says. They teach you some things that are, in my opinion, completely useless. They may look good, and they may work when you're training in the gym at police college. 
they teach you the basics. And quite frankly, when you get out onto the street and you're actually fighting with someone who's on drugs, who's extremely motivated and strong, there's no doubt about it. The go-to police procedure is not what works on a day-to-day basis in policing. It's some basic guidelines and the rest is essentially made up. Marshall says the force he used in arresting John was reasonable and necessary in order to maintain control to protect him and his staff. He also says it was a form of restraint he had used on other occasions and had never resulted in an injury. The constable called to give evidence for the prosecution says that he would use a knee on someone's head as a means of controlling them if required. If you control the head, then you've got control of them, he says. The senior constable called as a defence witness had been in the police for 18 years, mostly on the front line, and was involved in training new recruits arriving from the police college. He says a knee on the face was a common method that he'd also used himself. He says police get the best possible training, but they had to attend hundreds of thousands of jobs and no training could cover all possibilities. And as far as he was aware, there was no blanket rule concerning the use of a knee on someone's head that could apply to every situation. Judge Sainsbury released his findings in late March, finding Marshall guilty of assault. He concluded that Marshall's use of force went beyond anything that was reasonable or necessary and didn't accept that it was the effective available restraint. Sainsbury says it was possible to conceive of a situation where the temporary use of a knee to restrain a head was the only reasonably available option, but this is not that situation. He concluded that he couldn't avoid the inference that Mr. Marshall, annoyed by what he perceived to be John's non-cooperation, placed his knee on his head as a way of punishing him and showing him that he was in control. At sentencing in June, the judge acknowledged that Marshall had served with distinction and had carried out difficult roles requiring very high degrees of restraint under provocation and stress, which is something we do expect of our officers. Marshall applied for a discharge without conviction for various reasons, including the impact it would have on his career prospects and the possibility that he may one day wish to return to the police. Police wanted Marshall convicted and ordered to pay emotional harm of about $20,000, but during sentencing lowered this to about $5,000. The judge didn't consider that the consequences for Marshall would be out of proportion to the gravity of the conviction. So, convicted Marshall and ordered him to pay $4,000 in emotional harm reparation to John. Now 34 and happily pursuing another career, Marshall believes the decision to prosecute him was an overreaction. He questioned who made the decision and why he'd been charged when other officers in similar circumstances had been dealt with by way of an investigation by the Independent Police Conduct Authority before a charging decision had been made by police. He says policing isn't pretty. This sort of thing happens all the time, and when you're involved in those situations, you're always thinking how it got to that point. In 12 years of policing, I learnt what worked. It might not be supported by policy, but that's what happens on the street, and it's the best way of controlling someone. 
Marshall says it would be very difficult for anyone who hadn't worked in policing to know how ineffective some of the police training is and how hard the nitty-gritty of trying to arrest someone who doesn't want to be arrested actually is. He says he and his wife had hoped to keep the door open on him re-entering the police in the future. I left with a good reputation and I stay in touch with my colleagues. They were always asking when I was coming back, he says. I doubt I'll ever be able to go back to policing with an assault conviction, sadly. Police were approached for comment on this story, but did not respond by deadline. That was Anatomy of an Arrest on the Long Read from Stuff, written by Marty Sharp, read by Almo Johnston and produced by Jen Black. This episode was edited by John Robbiehart. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you follow the podcast, you'll get the latest episode automatically. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.